Welcome to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. With me today is a very special guest, Michelle Vendiola, who goes by Shelley and who is a member of the Protect Mother Earth subcommittee of the Swinomish tribe. Her committee was called out recently in the Washington Post, which referred to the tribe as an ancient people with a modern climate plan. The local Lacanar Weekly News proudly declared Swinomish tribe's innovative climate plan draws national attention. Shelley is trained as a peacemaker and as a facilitator. Though Shelley is not unfamiliar with the native activist communities, her role as a peacemaker is to bring people together. We don't have a choice, she says, as climate change already takes a toll on indigenous communities. Let's take a moment to breathe and sit down together as Shelley begins a story of her life's work and how that work is made more relevant and necessary by our changing environment today. We're going a bit longer with our next two episodes as our topic is literally how the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and how we choose to adapt to climate challenges could be the difference between success or failure, life or death. For the folks watching or listening, can you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background of how you came to be involved in the work you're doing now? Sure. Uh, so I'm going to introduce myself in our, our language, which is Dwala um, so greetings, my friends and relatives. Uh, my ancestral name is uh, Hagalitza. I am Swinomish and I am Visayan. And uh, so good morning, I'm happy to be here. Uh, you asked me to just share a little bit about my background. I, I am a peacemaker. I have been formally trained by Indian Dispute Resolution Services out of Davis and Sacramento, California back in the 90s. And then uh, before that, I was uh, trained by San Francisco Community Boards program at the uh, at the suggestion and recommendation of my mother who is also a peacemaker and uh, at that time she was working with a group out here in in Washington called the Northwest Intertribal um, Court System and at that time the um, the judge Judge Kuchaisi was wanting to bring peacemaking and mediation kind of work into tribal communities. So they work with 14 different tribes to get them trained up on um, peacemaking skills. And um, so I went into that, that world of peacemaking because my mother said that that's what our, our communities needed. And at that time I was in an undergraduate and I was just trying to figure out what to do. So while I was getting my undergraduate in um, 
I was basically in liberal arts with an emphasis on ethnic studies. I was also taking this peacemaking training and it had, has been uh, very transformative, you know, as a young person and I use it still today, these peacemaking skills. And I find that, that oftentimes we don't get the opportunity to share who we are and to touch each other's heart through a peacemaking model because we've learned so much in the public school system how to be so competitive and how to win um, <clears throat> in any given situation. And uh, for peacemaking, it really requires relationship building and a deeper understanding of who we are if we're going to care for one another and if we're going to care for the earth. And at the heels of my formal training i got my i cut my teeth as a peacemaker um, with two organizations the indigenous women's network and the indigenous environmental network and that's where i was not only training uh, organizers uh, throughout indian country be because that's the service area that both organizations was serving indigenous women's network at that time was international and the Indigenous Environmental Network at that time was pretty much national. It's grown up and it's gone national. Um, but at that time, uh, I was working with both organizations and I was actually teaching peacemaking and conflict resolution. And I, I was actually doing a lot of mediation internally and with our partner organizations like Greenpeace, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, there's strong relationship with those organizations and Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and those folks. And so mm -hmm. it's been a, a relationships that we've been trying to nurture and grow. But we find with every generation, there's a need to decolonize and to inform people about what it means to work in indigenous communities if that community is on a front line, just trying to protect what is sacred or their water or the air or the land that, you know, they have to live on. This is Robin Carnina of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on nature's touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. And the thing is that I marry the work of the peacemaker with the work of uh, envir environmental activists. So uh, I was the in the Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, I not only was doing that conflict resolution and facilitating a lot of conversations, often very difficult because people were not on the same page, but um, the good thing is that people ultimately came together since we have had to service many different tribal communities throughout the country mm -hmm. on some pretty big issues, whether it was nuclear waste um, and the cleanup issues or persistent organic pollutants, you know, all, all these things that were happening across um, the country with not only indigenous communities, but communities of color because oftentimes those communities are redlined into places that are pretty toxic, the environment, I mean. And so um, that, that work has uh, strengthened my ability as an educator and as a peacemaker to bring those lessons home 
So I work with our Swinomish tribal community at present as a consultant um, with our organization, which is the Community Engagement and Peacemaking Project. So um, I started that, I co-founded that with my mother and some other folks that we were um, able to work with throughout the years or who went through our training program and became trainers themselves. And so um, it's been a wonderful experience working with my mother in my own community. Um, we are working on the Climate Change Resilience Grant, um, which is a project of the Swinomish tribe. We are part of what we call the Protect Mother Earth subcommittee that reports to the Department of Environmental Protection, which is the, um, the name of the department that the grant is run through. And so our work is centered on uh, lifting our language, our Dola Sutsi language, and teaching that to our, our young ones and families um, with the hope that we will uh, remember those old ancient stories and the terminology, the words, the phrases that connect us to the earth that um, is our sacred obligation to protect and to uh, ensure that we are all thriving in a um, way that is healthy and in a manner that is uh, centered on wellness. And, um, and it's only because, you know, we've as indigenous people have had to survive many traumas throughout the years, you know, with smallpox during the initial colonization process, with new laws and new governing systems that were imposed upon us using things like Robert's Rules of Order. And I was trained by a lot of elders and peacemakers that, you know, consensus is more appropriate manner, you know, with the tree of peace over there, um, the great um, uh, tree of peace that, that the uh, tribes over in the New York area that would be the uh, Oneidas and the Senecas and um, many of the tribes that were from that area created a way of decision-making that in, was very inclusive of all of those tribal groupings and families. And whenever there was a um, disagreement or a wrongdoing, they would gather to together under a tree and that became known as the tree of peace. And coincidentally, I should mention that the, um, the way that the, the U.S. government governing system has been structured, it follows that model. And if you think of the United Nations, for example, another entity that kind of uses that same model where you gather all the nations together and you uh, sort of go around in a circle to talk about the important matters that need to be talked about and to discuss what is going to be the appropriate way to handle these wrongdoings or these misunderstandings or these conflicts. And so that work has followed me throughout the years. I continue to do that in my uh, facilitation of strategic planning processes whenever there's new and different ways of doing things. And as we've, um, been very uh, 
impacted by this COVID-19 virus, um, there has been a great need for us as humans to change our behavior. And when you're doing that, it, it kind of causes a little conflict because it's a different way of knowing and being that we may not know how to adapt just yet. So there's going to be that tension. There may be some misunderstanding and disagreements about how to move forward, really. Like, did we reach herd immunity? Our, you know, medical advisors and experts are telling us that we need to change our behavior if we're going to survive. And I think the ancient language and the teachings within that that are embedded in the language that connects us to the earth are the same thing, like the CDC was trying to do when COVID came around. And, you know, there were a lot of losses because people didn't really believe the virus even was real. Just like there's a lot of people that don't want to believe that the climate crisis is real. And so I see a lot of young ones stepping up and like getting very concerned about why the adults aren't treating this like a crisis. And, um, and I just have to say that I'm really excited about this work. So um, we as the Protect Mother Earth um, subcommittee under the Department of Environmental Protection at Swinomish is very, very um, dedicated at this point to raising awareness about the impacts and also about our um, our ability to adapt, our ability to think creatively and coherently about the way forward. You were saying that the eagles are not going up the Skagit River as they used to do. And what does that indicate to you? So that just indicates that um, because the salmon are not returning up the river like they once were when there was abundance of salmon going up river, um, Again, there's there three dams that are on the Skagit River. Um, the eagles are not flying upriver. They're staying lowland. They're staying more in the valley area where there are still salmon returning. But when they can't swim, swim upriver, they can't spawn in their usual spawning grounds. And so hence the diminishing of the numbers of salmon. And there's different species of salmon that sw swim up that river. We, we have uh, the fortune of having um, the great wealth of five species of salmon in one river, the Skagit River. And so that river is very precious to us. And um, again, the salmon is our sustenance, our swadops. Um, people are people of the salmon. We are people by the water. Our reservation is surrounded by water. And there's a lot of inundation and a lot of warming that's happening where we have to figure out um, how we're going to adapt through food sovereignty programs like our uh, clam bed, growing our clam gardens so that our clam beds can be more fruitful and perhaps um, uh, survive in, in these kind of conditions with a little help from our science folks and our community folks to help mitigate and create an environment where where the clams will thrive and not go away from us. And so we're studying, uh, the tribe has studied the different kind of clam garden um, beds and uh, operations up in our, our relatives in the British Columbia area where uh, there are tribes that are doing 
that they're they're growing clan gardens and they're they're seemingly thriving so we have a lot to learn from each other um, we have a lot of work to do another example is you know what we're seeing evidence of this climate crisis is the forest uh, fires the the rampant wildfires that are crossing the state of washington even and as i watch the news and I look at the maps of where all these fires are, there's most of the state of Washington has been on fire this year. I mean, half the country was on fire last year. So, you know, the evidence is clear that when that happens, it changes your ecosystem. And we don't know what the fallout is yet, the, the long-term effects. We're studying that. We don't know how fast and hard the climate crisis really is gonna impact, but we're seeing it happening faster than predicted. And so I'm uh, very, very much concerned about the future and our survival in terms of um, feeding what we call feeding our Indian. That's access to our traditional food sources. We have a reservation that has boundaries and there's certain like uh, 10 miles by seven miles of reservation land, but we have our usual and custom places that we get the right to hunt, fish, and gather in. You know, it's in our, again, treaty, 1855 Point Elliott Treaty in Article 5. It says that we have the right to hunt, fish, and gather in our usual and accustomed places. And my question, is that possible? This is Robin Carnina of Namapa First Peoples Radio. You're listening to Nature's Touch with host Robert Lindahl. Thanks for joining us by the campfire. Don't go away. If we have usual and accustomed places that span way beyond the reservation boundaries up to the mountains and down to down south to Snohomish and up as far as the um, border of Whatcom County and the northern part of Whidbey Island, that's a pretty big expanse of area. That's like four counties I just described. <laughs> but anyway, our usual custom places are far reaching and that's where we hunt and gather things. And so that's where other tribes, our neighboring tribes do the same because they have their usual and custom places. And so our treaty right says that, but that doesn't mean that's gonna happen given the climate crises. And so a lot of tribes who again are the indicator species because they live off the earth, they live off the water, we are farmers of the sea um, some of us are farmers of the land. I'm seeing folks like the White Earth Land Recovery Project and Honor the Earth. They're buying back land. They're growing hemp. Hemp mitigates the toxins in the in the earth. I mean, there's all kinds of creative ways that we could look at how we're going to survive, how our future is going to thrive and survive. Perhaps it's 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 at we're at that point where that we have to really make a concerted effort and we can't do it alone our studies show that our small reservation our small Swinomish Indian tribal community um, will not be able we don't have the capacity to do it alone we need our neighbors and our neighbors need us because the tide is not going to tide surge is not going to stop at you know only impacting the reservation boundaries as a matter of fact, the town of LaConnor will be more severely impacted than our reservation. 
So we need each other. Mm -hmm. The thing is that transportation will be cut off between the reservation and where the corner is. So if, if the means is far beyond the scope of what our tribe has a capacity for, you know, it's obvious that we, we need each other. We need the county, we need the townships surrounding us, we need the, um, the people that live, work, and pray on the reservation land to cooperate and to work with us. We, we have to strategize together because frankly, we're in it together. And so that's where the peacemaking and conflict resolution skills come into play. That's also where our traditional values and the way of knowing and being on the earth come into play. So when we bring those to the forefront, we perhaps can create a deeper level of understanding and really build relationships in a powerful way that satisfies everyone um, to some degree as we move forward. And so I really like what these young people are doing when they say take the state to court because of the climate crises um, and that they're starting to get more vocal. They're starting to become activists and taking a stand and marching and boycotting, especially in the British Columbia area. And we, as we see a lot of their forests is on fire. So it's just uh, a, an effort that I think as human beings, we have the responsibility to, to, to do for one another in the future and also for our relatives. Our relatives that are the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged ones, the ones that we depend on. And so um, our climate change resilience grant is uh, looking at our language as the foundation for the work and that the teachings that come out of utilizing the language and the stories that come out when we work with our elders and connect them with our young people that have that energy to affect change, that, that, that is at the that, that those are the foundation of how we move forward. And, and I think that we all stand to, to learn from that process, from that model, which is an ancient model. And as I was saying earlier, we don't necessarily, we've never used Robert's rules necessarily as much as we've come up with processes for building the relationships and an understanding for how we mitigate or how we resolve a conflict like the climate crises. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the issues and how they're kind of nested together in the public view and not very clear. Um, for example, we talk about um, climate, we talk about environment, but you're getting to a human rights question and, and a health question. So mm -hmm. how do they work together and how does your committee uh, come to an understanding that's broader and, and how can that be communicated? Well, um, so like any governing system, we do have a health department and we do have an education department, culture department, and we have all these entities like, like any governing system. In the tribal world, they also have the cultural department that really, you know, is where the, the uh, language is housed. It's where we, the knowledge of how we practice, like our salmon homecoming ceremonies, 
It's a yearly annual thing. The entire community takes part. We invite very important guests that perhaps can help us and maybe have the same vision and mission of bringing the salmon back. And we serve a lunch. Um, our fisheries folks really does a lot of work to be good hosts. And then there's that lunch is followed by a procession in which is led by our young people and they bring the bones of the salmon to the water. We pray for the health and safety of the salmon and the fisher folks that are going out to fish because it is kind of a dangerous occupation. And in that ceremony, we pray that the salmon will return. And we're, we, in that way, we, we're showing honor and respect for something that gives us our sustenance. And that is a, a, it's a ceremony. And so we have our traditional foods at ceremonial when we spread the table, call it spread the table for this meal. We want to be good hosts and we want to serve our traditional foods. And so it's very reciprocal in that manner. And it's also very, um, it promotes wellness with our own people because we get to practice who we are. We get to understand why that's important and we get to involve our, our, our elders and our young people and our entire community while informing and raising awareness with our guests. Um, they could be dignitaries, politicians, they could be educators from the neighboring school, which often, you know, they're often there with class classes. And so it's just a community wide effort. Um, and that's been going on for years. You know, since I was little, I remember. And um, and the other part of it is now with our resilience um, project, we want to look at how to partner our Department of Environmental Protection, our Protect Mother Earth subcommittee, with the work that the behavioral health program, it used to be called mental health, but that our behavioral health program is doing when they work on youth suicide prevention because we see that some of this, some of this work might help develop some confidence and some strategies for young people to perhaps use as an anchor um, as they move through the challenges of getting an education in a public school that doesn't really recognize who they are in their backgrounds. And so not only do they get to practice who they are, they get to strategize, they get to figure out ways moving forward in the future, given our current impacts. And um, there's a lot of families that have young people that are helping um, when they go out crabbing, for example. Right now it's crabbing season. So they get to go and crab with their families or they go out on the boat and fish. So that's happening. There's a lot of um, things to be said about these canoe journey um, and the canoe races that many families have um, participated in as a healthy activity. So this project hopes to bring the language into those arenas, working with our young people to pick up the language and also connect with the language to the earth. And so the lessons will be connected to the earth or perhaps stories of teachings that are ancient that tell us how to behave in the world, that, that warn us that if we behave a certain way, you know, perhaps we'll have a difficult time. And then it also re reminds us 
of the sacrifices that some characters in the story made so our people today could survive. And so all of that is is pretty rich knowledge. And that's what I was saying about, you know, bringing the, the Lashutsi language and the place knowledge together. And so we see that as uh, a valuable process for moving forward. And that's why, you know, our resilience project has has two efforts. One is the um, update to our climate change uh, adaptation plan. The first one was completed in 2010, and now we're revisiting that plan to see what was done, lessons learned, and maybe some strategies moving forward. And then the second part of that resilience project is what we are calling the Away Forward Toolkit. We want to figure out a way forward together. And so what our Protect Mother Earth subcommittee has done is created a strategy for working with the different departments, behavioral health, as I was saying, and their youth programs, because most of that is centered around, you know, survival and suicide prevention, those type of things. Education, because, you know, we would like to get into the schools and we would like to share some of our lessons with the since time immemorial state curriculum that is mandated by school districts. So if we're going to come out with curriculum, we would like that curriculum to be accurate. We would like to inform that curriculum as Swinomish tribal members and teachers and educators that are going into the school then to work not only with our, our young people, but our neighbors, young, young ones. We're not separating it out. And then, and then also with our culture department, because they have always been practicing who we are, whether it's in a ceremonial setting or whether it is in a um, youth wellness activity setting like canoe journey, dance and song practices. And, uh, and then there's the, uh, of course, the Department of Environmental Protection. And that's what's sort of incubating this um, strategy moving forward. And so uh, that's pretty much a scenario that has played out in our community before. It seems to work. So we're going to piggyback on what works. And we're just calling it something new and different today. And we're, we're pulling in our different resources because we have a lot of knowledge that just needs to be a little organized and maybe woven together so that you know we're giving the same messages and we're enriching the teachings by bringing our place knowledge and language into the classrooms or into the youth group settings. Um, I must say that we were pretty close to losing the language and we're bringing it back. And so there's a concerted effort to, there has been um, a thought of bringing uh, are building up a language program at Swinomish, which is non-existent at this time. It's We have instructors going into the preschool and um, we've had one class in the um, in the Laconner School District um, working with a couple different um, age groups, but uh, we, we would like to grow that 
uh, part of the work. So our culture department has been really wanting that to happen. And so we want to strengthen that piece of the work, thereby um, weaving our, our energy together. And so um, that's pretty much the scope of, of uh, the Climate Change Resiliency Grant. Um, our subcommittee has been ongoing since, I want to say, 08. So 2008, we started the Climate Change Initiative, the first round of, you know, figuring out how we are impacted by the climate and looking at um, what might be some of the more burning issue areas, you know, the high um, vulnerable areas, um, medium vulnerable areas and low. And then from there, creating strategies to mitigate or adapt. And so we are now in the second phase of that, or I should say the second version. Um, so looking at the past 12 years, lessons learned, what was completed, has have the impacts changed at all and this time around we'd like to get input from our community the first time around we didn't get to do that we got to inform our community of the impacts but they didn't get a chance to like look at some strategies or consider some strategies and our belief is that we we be honorable in this work and so rather than do things on the community we would like to work with the community hand in hand with community and sharing. Um, there's a term that our, um, that our uh, community uses um, at every gathering and it's loving, caring and sharing. And that's a, um, that's a thought that was left with us from my uncle Chet Caillou. And he always spoke about how we need to be loving and caring and sharing with one another, with our guests, that, that that's who we are. And so those are values. Those are values that hopefully we can pick up and we can pass on to the next generation. Um, there's a Lushutsi word, it's Hachusadat. And the simplified version of that is education, but really Hachusadat is traditions of the heart. And with traditions of the heart comes compassion. But tradition of the heart means that we know what our values are and we uphold those values. And it also means that we are informed by nature and the earth around us because that is education. That is our education. Our wealth is not the almighty dollar. Our wealth is what comes from the sea. That's our wealth. Our wealth is how we spread the table. Our wealth is how much we can give away. And so it's a real different way of knowing and being than in a Western, you know, public school kind of teaching and learning. And so that is the piece that we would want, would like to bring in and introduce to our neighbors and also, um, you know, have our young people go uh, through these experiences as families, as um, being connected to our elders and and start really picking up that language again. Because many tribes, there are many tribes that are larger that speak pretty fluent or have fluent speakers. We do not have fluent speakers per se, but we have people that are learning to become fluent speakers today. And so that is why we prioritize that piece. 
because I think that there's a lot to be learned by these ancient stories and just the terminology, which is cannot be confused. It's not the English language. <laughs> and terminology is often, there's often embedded in that a value system that really is connected to how we survive on the earth and on the water. And it's thousands of years old because why? Because our ancestors got, had that time to study their surroundings. And it was never, ever, we, we were not ever of the mindset of the ego mindset that says that we are in a hierarchy manner. We are in, in an existence where one is above another. We never, that never existed because we had to work together to survive circumstances where we didn't have electricity and we didn't have cars. And, and it was pretty difficult actually for our ancestors to live hence studying the earth so that they could survive on it. And we're soon to be coming to that because we've seen what happened in Texas when the grid went down and we're seeing a lot of fires and people are having a hard time breathing. And so I'm just saying that when we learn how to survive on the earth in a traditional manner, perhaps we can thrive because the earth, you know, the earth can take care of herself has been, there's been ancient civilizations that we know about, that there's evidence that had pretty sophisticated, um, you know, technology. I would have to say that I feel like our technology is pretty sophisticated today. I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, here we are again. It's not like we haven't been down this road as many scientists and many archeologists and many people who have evidence who've studied the earth can, can attest to. And that's something that I think, uh, you know, we have these ancient stories and embedded in their stories are some of these things that we feel like are so, you know, what way beyond us, you know, and part of that is intuition. The other part of it is how we be well in our environment. So when we say, you know, living in a traditional manner, what I'm saying is we have a canoe practice and in that practice we have racing canoes and then we have journey canoes the journey canoes are much bigger the racing canoes are slimmer slicker lighter and faster we have that technology still today we have that knowledge we have one long house in the center of our village and um, the thing about long houses is if you think about how those were built before colonization happened before you know the 1800s um everybody had to participate because you know if you think about the wood and the logs and felling the tree and many trees to build a long house that is massive or over a hundred people can live um that's a lot of heavy lifting and so not one person or five people it had it was a community of people that worked together to put up a longhouse that people could live in during the winter, that they could, uh, you know, have a place to weave. They had a place to tell stories. They had a place to be warm in. And so it's that, you know, it's not, it, it's not like it's, um, it's, it's actually very practical. It's very practical living off the land. And if we have that mentality, I think perhaps, you know, a lot of people will be able to thrive in a healthier way 
given the circumstances that we're in today. And I must say that um, I'm really, really excited that a lot of the young, um, well, a lot of the women are coming forward in indigenous communities and, and, and their voices are being amplified now because of that connection that we as women have to the earth, that we are, um, you know, we birth children we are reflections of the earth herself. You know, we, we feed our children. Um, so a lot of those kind of teachings are coming back as well. You know, midwifery, for example, um, all, of the, all of the homeopathic medicine that's happening today. Ancient, ancient, and if you think about where, where did that come from? It's old, thousands of years old. <laughs> You know, and then we have the Western medical field, but I'm just saying that there is ancient knowledge that we can pick up and we can learn from. Like, I like to practice yoga and I like to meditate. I like to do Qigong, which is ancient. Why? Because it helps me to de-stress. So I'm, I'm picking up things that are helpful. That's not to say that you have to do one thing one way all the time, because that's sort of impractical given, you know, the ever-changing environment that we live in, because the environment is always changing. Just like as we age, we as human beings, we change. We are reflections of the earth. And so therefore, you know, a long time ago, Carrie Dan of Western Shoshone, um, her and her sister ran the Dan Ranch, and uh, they had a big strife with the federal government trying to take away their cattle and not let them be who they were. Um, she always said, you know, back in the 90s, she always said, you know, the earth has a fever. The earth has a fever and she's going to purge because that's what you do when you have a fever. <laughs> you know, it's a no-brainer. We, we are of the same DNA. That's what John Trudell always says, right? We are of the same DNA of the earth. So, you know, we have to behave as if the earth matters. And so that's a, lar lar a large part of the work that we are doing trying to do in our Protect Mother Earth subcommittee and this resilience project. And so I'm, my, my hope and my prayer is that it will be meaningful for our community and those that are, are partners to us and beyond. Um, so we're just doing the best we can, that's all. We're just doing the best we can to remember who we are and practice who we are. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. I'm truly honored to have been with Michelle Vendiola today. She is a member of the Protect Mother Earth subcommittee of the Swinomish tribe. I'll be chatting more with Shelley on our next episode as climate change brings fire, floods, and fury to the Pacific Northwest with indigenous tribal communities on the front lines. You can find Climate Changes Here on Apple Podcasts and at climatechangeshere.com.